Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. of spin. This is Amy Bird, and today I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Todd Pruitt and Carl Truman, but we are delighted to introduce Alex Chediak. He is professor of engineering and physics at California Baptist University. He's a husband. He's a father. He's the author of Beating the College Debt Trap, Preparing Your Teens for College, which is more for parents to read, and then Thriving at College, which is more for college students to read or high school students to read. And I'm so excited to have you on today, Alex. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Like, so how does a professor of engineering and physics start writing books about relationships, life skills, you know, and, and adulting? Yeah, yeah. You know, it was a long process. I guess I started teaching in 2007, no, 2005. I began part-time in 2005 and then more full-time in 2006. But as I was looking at my students and thinking about my own days, I loved being a student and I loved everything about the college experience and made some mistakes, did some things well by God's grace. But when I started teaching, I saw thinking differently about the experience and seeing how my students were prepared or not prepared, seeing delayed adolescence up front, seeing the consequences that it was having on students, also recognizing how much more was at stake than there used to be, it seems. Basically, in the last 30 years, more people have been going to college than ever before. College is more expensive than ever before. Mm. College is therefore more consequential in a person's life. And yet we have a large cadre of people going who are not as prepared as they need to be. And so freshman Mm -hmm. dropout rates are too high. Student debt loads are too high. Students are making, in some cases, catastrophic mistakes in their college years that influence them for 15 years to come. Yeah, it's pure genius. I mean, like when I'm reading through the book and and I had already read Beating the College Debt Trap, which was extremely helpful as our daughter was uh, looking for a college and we were thinking about all of that. And as I was reading through Thriving at College, I, I was just thinking like, you were made to write this book. Like, how are you a professor of engineering and physics? It was going through my head, like, this guy teaches physics, and yet he is such a good writer. This is written, I mean... What do you say to my physics people? They're not good, they're not good writers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just didn't think that, you know, a physics professor would, would relate... Would be so normal. <laughs> would be so normal. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten that before. Yeah. How does how does a physicist understand like human relationships and that kind of thing? I think it's the big deal. I agree with Amy's uh, enthusiasm for the book. It's a book that I've been recommending to people since it came out. We have it in our book area at the church where I pastor, and and it's one that we really encourage folks to get their hands on. And as Amy said, it covers things that students really need to grapple with, whether they realize it. Right their senior year of high school or not, things that they really need to grapple with. Alex, as you know, both as a parent and as a college professor, sending your kids off to college is is enormously exhausting, just emotionally, physically, spiritually. There's so much work to do. And it's, you know, we as parents sending our kids off to college run the gamut of the emotions from sadness, but also happiness for them, excitement, but, but lots of sadness. And then concern as well, because the college campus can be a, a really hostile place for an 18-year-old's 
faith and moral commitments, etc. And so I wonder if you would just kind of briefly describe what you're hoping to achieve in this book, Thriving at College. What are kind of the main areas you try to address in a student's life as he or she yeah. is entering this totally foreign thing for them? They're getting ready to have more freedom and less accountability than they've ever had in their life. Mm-hmm. And right. so the stakes are high. So what are some of the main things you're seeking to address here? Yeah, well, really, it's meant to be a roadmap for how you take on God-glorifying adulthood, how you, because part of what happens at college is this process. You go there as a child in many ways, and you leave, hopefully, as an adult. You leave with, with new skills, marketable skills, hopefully, but also just more of an adult orientation to life, a sense of personal responsibility, a sense of independence, a sense of being able to take on the challenges of hopefully earning a living, going to church on your own. So this accepting of adult responsibility is the essence of the book. And I cover spiritual aspects of that, also relational aspects, academic aspects, financial aspects of that as well. Yeah, it's such a holistic book. That's what I love about it the most is that it really weaves together all those themes. And um, the the way that you've laid it out has um, little factoids everywhere and just kind of bouncing off of what Todd said, one of them is that, did you know that 70% of young adults who attended a Protestant church regularly for at least a year in high school will stop attending church regularly between the ages of 18 and 22? 70%. I mean, that's just shocking to read. Yeah. Now, now a lot of that, some of them do come back. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's not necessarily all doom and gloom, but I, I think what often happens is they've been in age segregated communities from zero to 18 and they mm-hmm. haven't thought about how do I find the church myself? How do I personally go out and maybe look at the church's website, maybe listen to a sermon and pick out a church. Now the internet is, I think is making this much easier for today than it was maybe 20, 30 years ago. Um, right. You, you can have a roadmap in the sense of, okay, there's three churches in this town that I want to visit within the first month. And maybe I even can get to know some people at those churches and they're waiting to meet me. It, uh, when I get there, I think it's, I think if there's a sense of accountability, a sense of, okay, I know Jane Smith is going to be at this church and I'm going to go meet her on this Sunday. Um, there's a lot, it's a lot easier to set your alarm on Saturday night. If you know someone's waiting to see you Sunday morning, than if no one's going to be there, then mm-hmm. you're not expecting to meet anybody in particular. If you're there, great. If you're not there, no one's going to miss you. That sense of anonymity, I think, can be very dangerous for an 18-year-old if they've not been prepared for that. So that's a conversation that parents can have before a kid goes off. Hey, what's your plan church-wise when you get to this new town? What should parents be doing, Alex? I mean, there are various models of parenting once your kids have left home. I mean, Amy, complete control freak. <laughs> so wouldn't surprise me if she'd got tracking software on her kid's phone. Thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing wrong there's with people that. with daughters who tend to use that stuff i've noticed yes but you know what should parents what is a a wise strategy for parents to engage in given the fact that all kids are different and, and one size is unlikely to fit all but what is a wise strategy for parents to to adopt when the kid goes to college relative to the freedoms that the child will then enjoy. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a. I think the year before they go, maybe a conversation they have on a regular basis is how how much contact do we expect to have? It's so easy now to have contact, and actually, most students have a lot of contact with their parents that I've seen. At least at a Christian school, that's that's kind of the, the more the norm of what I see. But I think for parents to say, hey, we we expect you to check in with us with some regularity, 
and we want to know how things are going in your classes. We want to know how things are going in, in your personal life, uh, whether you're going to a church, what church you're going to. We want to be informed of those things. Is that a good expectation? I think asking the kid before they go, is this okay with you? Getting some sense of buy-in. You don't want to surprise them, I think, after the fact. Not, not all of a sudden you're calling them every night and they weren't expecting you to call them every night. Then they can kind of be freaked out. But I think if you talk about it, their senior year of high school, that summer before they go, hey, we want to be involved in your life. We want to let you go, but we also want to be involved. There's so many ways that can be done now. Um, financially, for example, a lot of kids have bank accounts where their parents can, can check in and look at that. I think, I think that's, very, that's very fair. The kid's learning to be independent, but they're not yet 23 years old. So to say, okay, I want to know what you're doing with that debit card you have, or I want to, I want to know how much you're spending on this or that, or I want to see how you're doing academically. Uh, I think that's very appropriate and very uh, respectful. And it, it actually, it honors them that, that they're not ready to go cold turkey on day one. You want it to be a gradual process over four or five years where they're becoming more independent. Mm-hmm. I really like how you address that in the book as well, because, yeah. you know, something I, ha- I thought about, it's, it's so much easier to tax and you're kind of referred to the cell phone as kind of this umbilical cord, you know, that um, is still there. And, and my daughter, some of her roommates and friends were talking to their moms continuously through the day and texting them and asking them a question right. about every decision that they made. Whereas I kind of backed off, I, you know, <laughs> and Carl's half teasing about me being controlling. But I mean, I really did. Before she turned 18, I had mm-hmm. her on the iCloud. I could see her text messages if I wanted to. I could locate her you know, wherever her phone was. Yeah. And after she turned 18, here, here. I took her off, you know, and, but she said, so some of her roommates, mm-hmm. their parents still see where they are. They're still on yeah. these locators and they're still uh, holding on to that umbilical cord. And you talk about how that de- also right. delays. Right. Right. I think, I think helicopter parenting and delayed adolescence are in some ways, two sides of the same coin. Because if we helicopter our kids, which mm-hmm. is very, very tempting, I have a 12-year-old daughter myself, and we're, we monitor on iCloud. And we, she doesn't have a phone yet, but we've talked about, okay, one year in high school, this is the level of control we're going to have. When you go to college, we're going we're gonna to let go of that as we see that you take on more responsibilities and you're more uh, competent at making choices for yourself. The more you show responsibility, the more you're going to see us backing off. We want to be shifting our mindset from commander, so to speak, to coach life coach, right? Because you're an adult making right. decisions and responsible before God for those decisions. And a lot of these things that kids will text their parents about are amoral decisions. They're not one right or wrong answer, but the, but the kids right. in the mindset, I've seen a lot yeah. of students in this mindset of there is only one right answer. If I get this wrong, I'm in trouble. And there's a risk aversion, I think, because we've protected them so much that they're afraid to make a decision that may come with a little bit of pain, uh, maybe a little bit of self-correction, but it's like, that's okay. You're going to be able to get knocked down and get back up again. I want my kids to know that when something goes the wrong way, it doesn't have to ruin their life. They can get back up again the next day and make a better choice. And so I think letting them, letting them reap what they sow. uh, Okay. Maybe they don't study for a test and they get a bad score. Well, actually I'd rather have them learn that at 18 than to have me micromanaging them until they're 21 and then they never learned that. Right. Yeah. Alex, I was reading an article just the other day on college costs. And one of the figures I saw was 
that the cost of university of education from the 20 years between uh, 1985 and 2005, the cost of university education increased nearly 500%. And that's just from 85 to 2005. Are you seeing big differences now in the way that families are approaching how they... Yes, yes, absolutely. I I think what's happening is over time, uh, parents are wanting their kids to have more skin in the game. Um, I just, I've got an article coming out this week about this. Over the last two years, attitudes on college, about Mm -hmm. 10% more parents, it went from 60% to 70%, the percentage of parents who said, my kid needs to have some skin in the game jumped by 10% in just two years. So I think what's happening is parents are not able Mm -hmm. to save as much money as they might want to have saved for their kids' college. The other thing that makes it confusing is list price, which is I think what you were talking about there, versus actual prices are are, are very different. Depending on a family's financial background, depending on their financial aid package, scholarship and granting can be anywhere between 30 and 50%. So nowadays for freshmen, the average figure is about 50% is discounted. So at a private college, let's say the price is 40000 the average freshman is paying 20000 So it's still a lot of money, but it's not, not $40,000. Um, so it makes it hard for the parent to predict, okay, how much am I going to have to spend? How much sure. am I going to have to save? Yeah, good point. That they're wanting their kid to have more ownership in that process. And I think that's very healthy. I think the students that I know who are working part-time are right. actually outperforming academically, the students that really have too much free time. Um, you know, and, and that's a big shift in the last 20 years. When, when I wrote Thriving at College, yeah. I talked about during the school year, if you can focus on your studies, that is ideal. But that, that assumes two things. It assumes, A, that you don't need to work a job on the off campus, and B, that you are able to focus on your studies. In other words, if you have, if you have 40 hours of free time, is that going to result in you playing for 40 yeah. hours? Or are you going to be able to say, I'm going to carve out 25, 30 hours where I'm actually going to study for my classes, right. even though I don't have a test tomorrow, I'm going to start getting ready for my test in two weeks, which is really what you need to be doing. So learning right. how to be disciplined with your time, because in college, you have a lot more free time than you do in high school. Right. And you need to be ready to handle that well. You need to, be, you need to study a lot more than you did in high school. And a lot of students don't realize that. They get to college and they assume, hey, I didn't have to study in high school. I'm not going to have to study here. And it's very, very different. I've had many conversations with students where I have to explain, this isn't high school anymore. This is college. This is college. You're not in class seven hours a day like you were in high school, right? And you're supposed to be doing the work outside of class more more like you you were in class. It's flipped. In college, you're more doing out-of-class work than you are in-class work. In high school, you're doing more in-class work than you are homework. The the, the homework-to-class ratio is basically reversed. Right. But the students, if they don't realize that, they can fail quite a few classes before that message right. gets through. What about the, the choice between Christian and non-Christian college, Alex? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Both my sons, well, one went to a very liberal Catholic institution and the other one went to a straight down the line secular college. Uh, I think a lot of people listening to this program may have an instinctive, well, of course you'd send your kid to a Christian college. Bottom line is, of course, a lot of Christian colleges are more Christian in their, should we say, in their advertising materials than they are in their classroom presentations. And I found it some ways 
I, I never found myself with my mm. boys in the embarrassing position of having to explain Christian hypocrisy yeah. relative to the experience at college. Secular hypocrisy, much easier to explain. <laughs> uh, uh, and that's not to, I mean, we both work for Christian colleges. That's not to indict yeah. all Christian <laughs> colleges. But it is to say that, that the advertising can sometimes be rather different to the reality. Mm-hmm. How should parents negotiate that, that fundamental question, Christian, non-Christian? And then how should they think about if they choose the Christian route, which Christian college? Yeah, great question. I think the non-Christian versus Christian college, talk with the child yeah. a lot their, their sophomore, junior year of high school to see, okay, what schools are you going to be looking at? Maybe you maybe decide to apply to some of both and then compare the two of them. I, I think at a, a non-Christian school, a student has to have much more responsibility for their own faith than at a Christian school. A Christian school is going to be something of a segue between being in a Christian family where, okay, your kid has to go to church on Sunday. Maybe they have to go to a youth group on Wednesday. Maybe they have to have Christian parameters around their life, guarding some of their relationship choices, right, in a Christian household. A Christian college is going to be something in between that and the, 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 the wide world of anything goes, so to speak, whereas a secular college is going to be anything goes at the college. So is, does your kid have a faith maturity that can handle that transition? Um, I went to a non-Christian college, and I was a Christian. I became a Christian when I was 14 years old um, and went to college as a Christian, wanting to grow in my faith, but really not realizing just how bombarded I would be with, with uh, lifestyle temptations that, which in, in the first, one or first month or two, uh, the, the amount of things that was thrown in my, my direction were surprising to me. And, it's, and, and that's only gotten worse in the area of really alcohol and sexuality are the two main ones. Um, so that, that's, you got to be ready for those temptations. You got to have a plan. I think if you're going to go to a non-Christian school, you want to think about, okay, what Christian students do I know at that school? What churches do I know in that town? What, what fellowships can I be a part of from day one and have a plan to join those fellowships so that I'm not alone? You, if, you're, if you are alone in that crowd, that can be very destabilizing. And it can bring on temptations that you're not able to emotionally anticipate. Uh, when people are alone and people are lonely, they can make some very poor choices. And it's just because mm-hmm. they, they want to dull that pain of loneliness that they make those choices. Alex, I wonder, do you have any, any suggestions for um, churches that minister to college students, um, things that they can do to help those students get connected well to that church while they're away from home, to, to, to help them? Uh, see it as their church home, away from home. Are right. Any practical ideas for for pastors, elders, college ministers to to do in those churches? Yeah, I would say if you could, if you can have any presence on orientation weekend or move in weekend, if you can do something where maybe you maybe you send a team to that school to help freshmen unload their mm-hmm. their boxes and their transition their stuff, it's a great way to to serve them and to also have an evangelistic presence there. They used to say, "Hey, I'm I'm from." so-and-so church. I'm here to meet students and to help them out. And by the way, we meet every Sunday morning at nine o'clock and you're welcome to come. And you just kind of, you're there to serve them and make connections. And, and then maybe you have like a barbecue that night or the next night. You have something where you can get them when they're most open, which is that first two, three weeks when they get to campus. The other thing is, is can you encourage your families to have them over for, for meals maybe on, on Sunday after church? If there's a connection relationally to people at that church, they are much more likely to go to that church. 
because they, they don't know anyone and they feel lonely and they feel they connect to people at the college because they're just like me. Yeah. Everybody at my college is 18, 19 years old in the same life stage. These people at church, do they even know me? Do they even care about me? I don't know if I fit in there. And so anything we can do to kind of help overcome that and take the initiative that and that, I think it's going to yield fruit. I want to switch the gears just a little bit here. And because um, I talk to a lot of teenagers who are maybe senior year in high school or maybe even freshmen, sophomores in college, and they have a really hard time um, figuring out what they want to, you know, declare a major for. Yeah. You know, what's your advice there? Because I know you talk about it some in the book. Yeah. So declaring a major is one of those things that's it's interesting. It's becoming, uh, in some pl- in some ways, it's becoming more important because the amount of time it takes to graduate is determined based on how many units you fill in a major. Now, there are, right. in some cases, there are what, are what you call small unit majors, majors that don't have a lot of academic requirements. In those cases, if you, ch- if you choose that major your sophomore year, you're probably still going to graduate in four years. If you choose to major in computer science your sophomore year, you're probably going to stay a fifth year just because of how many requirements are in that major. And for a lot of families, that fifth year is a financial uh, no-no. It's a financial, at this point, you know, <laughs> now you spend another $25,000 and we can't afford it kind of thing. So, so because families are more cost sensitive, the choice of the major is becoming more important. So what, what I encourage families to do is in high school, what are things you can do to expose your child to personality inventories, to shadowing people in the workplace, to figuring out a little, a bit of more of a sense of who you are and what you're good at. So you mentioned earlier, I teach engineering and physics. I'm one of those guys who has to fail a fair amount of students who want to be engineers, but they realize, okay, the math and the science are just not there. God hasn't wired me that way. And a lot of that, my view is that it's merciful to do it sooner because the longer you wait to figure out that this path is not going to work for me, the more money and time are down the hole in that path. So anything we can do in high school to help our kids realize, hey, I'm more of a writing person. I'm more of a music person. I'm more of a math science person. Having an informed Mm -hmm. view of themselves, an informed realistic perception. Because a lot of students now, the bias is towards an unrealistically positive, narcissistic view of myself. I'm really good (laughs) at everything, right? And and they've they've never been told They've never been told that actually, no, you can't sing very well. That's not going to be a music major. You're not going to be a math major. You know, and (laughs) I I keep hearing this thing of I'm good at math, I'm good at math. And I think, what is that based on? It's based on people who told you that, and it was not realistic. And I think sometimes as as parents, we don't want to hurt our kids, so we've only told them good things about everything but themselves. And and they go to college and realize, hey, you know what? It's harder than than I thought it was. I think the healthiest thing is to go into college knowing it's going to be academically demanding. There's going to be people who are smarter than me. I'm going to have to work hard to do well. If you go in with that mentality, you end up doing better. I've seen people go in. I saw a kid 10 years ago, came with a full scholarship, really bright guy, but he had never learned to work in his life at all because it had all been so easy for him. He began, he began the video game late night thing, became the champion in the dorm at that. And a year <laughs> later, he was off his scholarship and on academic probation. And it just it happens pretty quickly because the kid wasn't realized, wasn't prepared for what was coming his way. So yeah. just, if we can expect them to understand, you need to work hard to do well in any subject you do. If you want to do your best work unto the glory of God, your brain's a muscle and God expects you to develop it like you would any other muscle. So if this is a season of your life for preparing yourself to be useful to the mm-hmm. Lord in whatever he calls you to do. Uh, and, and the more well-developed your mind is, 
the greater range of things you can do when you graduate. And so what I've told my kids and the way I kind of tried to pitch it, I mean, my girl's 12 years old and she's starting to understand some of these things is if you work hard in school, you're going to have more opportunities. You're going to have more possibilities. Maybe you'll change your mind. You'll say, okay, I like this subject one day. Then two years later, you like this other subject. Fine. If you're a good student, then you're going to be able to transition. If you don't know how to work hard, you won't be able to transition. What about your other books, Alex? Uh, you've written a, a couple of other ones touching on college topics. Could you give us a brief synopsis of those? Yeah. So preparing your teens for college is basically, okay, your kid turns 12, 13. They're not just a little baby anymore, right? I think we all were, were aware of that transition where all of a sudden your kid goes over the course of a year or two from being a, a, a little child to being this little adolescent, this this thinker, this, this young adult, really. So as their brain changes at this stage of their life, it's not just their body, but their brain's changing. Their orientation of the world yeah. is changing. And now is the season where we're trying to prepare them for adulthood. So preparing your teens for college could really be titled preparing your teens for life, preparing your teens to be adults. So it's basically from 13 to 18, how do I get my kid ready to take on responsibility in the area of academics, work ethic, relationship management, choosing the right kinds of friendships, making the wise financial choices. Uh, basically, anything you want your kid doing as an adult, you want to start getting them ready for when they're 13, 14, all the way through until they're 18. Even in the college debt trap, being the college debt trap is, is focused on the, the, the financial part of college. It's written for students, but parents can benefit as well. And yet we have a large cadre of people going who are not as prepared as they need to be. And so freshman dropout rates are too high. Student debt loads are too high. Students are making... Uh, in some cases, catastrophic mistakes in their college years that influence them for 15 years to come. And so just realizing how much was at stake, I wanted to help my students be successful and kind of thriving at college was my attempt to basically have a chat with someone, basically telling them what I wish I, what I, wish mm. I had known when I was 18 years old, what, what I now realize. And I just want to highlight about your writing, Alex. Um, I find that writing to teenagers is one of the most difficult genres, really, audiences. Um, as I was looking for books for my girls to read when they, as teenagers, um, it, it was very hard because often it's either written above, you know, too adulty, or it's very cheesy. And, and they can smell that a mile away, you know, and, and, and they're insulted by that. <laughs> and you really... Mm -hmm. really write well to teenagers and you don't lower the standards, but you write in a very connecting yeah. way yeah, I agree. that is not at all cheesy. Let me just second that as we thank Alex for being our guest. I would just uh, second everything that Amy said there. Um, one of the things that I love about this particular book, Thriving at College, is that I'm never embarrassed to recommend this to high school seniors because mm -hmm. for the reasons you mentioned, they're not going to feel like they're being spoken down to. They're going to be reading something that really sounds like it's coming from someone who knows how to connect with them, knows how to speak their language. And, and it's just really well done because of that. And so as we wrap up, first of all, Alex, thanks for being with us today. This has been helpful. And I can tell you there's lots of parents who are going to listen to this and, and, and be thankful 
that there are some resources that can encourage and help them. So thank you so much for being with us today. So we want to thank you all for joining us today for this episode of Mortification of Spin. We would love to give you a copy of Alex Chediak's book, Thriving at College. And uh, if you would just head on over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter to win a copy of that book. Now, if you don't receive a free copy in the drawing, please get one anyway and get it to your uh, kid or, or the student in your life who would benefit from this. Also, while you're at our website, we would love for you to consider making a financial donation to Mortification of Spin so that we can continue uh, to offer you what we think is helpful content and what we think are subjects that will uh, help you and encourage you. So until next time, for Carl and for Amy, this is Todd Pruitt, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... I think if we're honest, a lot of our... Instead of ministering the Word of God to equip the saints so that they're capable of discernment, uh, sort of celebrity Christianity... Join us for that next time. We'll talk to you then. Yeah, I mean, Amy, you don't sound any different than you normally do. Just very nasally. And and the thing is, Alex, once once uh, Amy starts firing up the cigars, it just gets worse. Her her voice gets really husky at that point. I mean, I know the smell's different, but I didn't know how the smoke stayed. <laughs>